Morning, church. Is there a single theme to the narrative of the Bible? Is there a one single uh, story that's running uh, from beginning to end in the entire thing? Sure. I mean, that's it. Uh, th- this story that God is with us and that God has come to save us. This is what's uh, so great about the, the season that we're in because we get, you know, for one precious month every year, you, you get to hear theological truth played at Old Navy. <laughs> it's wonderful. And the sound system and market basket, right? It declares this stuff. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. It's beautiful. It's biblical. Not all Christmas carols uh, tell the story of salvation. Sometimes grandma just gets run over by a reindeer. (laughs) According to ASCAP.com, do you want to guess the number one Christmas song that got the, the most number of plays in the year 2016? Hint, it's from 1934. Nope. Santa Claus is coming to town. It's a little bit of a scary song. <laughs> this creepy figure is watching you, keeping a list. He knows if you've been bad or good, so we are encouraged to be good for goodness sake. Uh, Beg points out it is a daunting challenge for small children laying in their bed wondering how good is good enough. Um, in one of those letters that um, uh, the New York Times publishes every year, uh, letters to Santa, uh, one kid wrote, Dear Santa, can you come early this Christmas? I've been super good this year, but I don't think I can last much longer. <laughs> so please come soon. <laughs> It's a fair question. How good do I have to be? And for how long do I have to keep it going? Um, My name is Travis Bond. I serve as senior pastor here, and I'm really grateful to do so. Um, I don't know how many of you would still have in your memory banks a sermon from a year ago. Um, I'm a realist, I understand. But a few of you might recall last December a sermon from the Gospel of Matthew Uh, Because it was a little bit of an atypical Advent sermon, Uh, the first half of Matthew chapter 1 is just genealogy. And so we just hung out in this genealogy uh, about all of these, this, this record of really broken people in need of grace who formed the Messiah's lineage. And we made the point about a year ago that Jesus came from sinners so that he could stand with sinners. Jesus came from sinners so that he could stand with sinners. So I thought um, from there, we just continue on in the same chapter now a year later. So if you brought your Bibles, um, I encourage you to open up to first book in the New Testament, Matthew, now the second half of chapter one. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, this is page 807. I think you'll be helped to follow along, uh, particularly today page 807. While you're turning there, um, think about way back in Genesis 3, uh, the fall of mankind, God knew that our greatest need was not a Santa, but a Savior. 
Yet that Savior, as um, Pastor Don alluded to a, a few moments ago, he did not come without great cost. Because if you think about it, you just start adding it up, right? That, that, that angel choirs that deserved the grandest of cathedrals are instead singing to shepherds in empty fields. Christmas was costly. The culmination of David's royal lineage was an infant born among farm animals. Christmas was costly. The king of creation is dressed in strips of linen. Christmas was costly. And the bright nativity star actually just provides target light for a Herod who wants to execute a potential infant rival. Christmas, the real, biblical, raw Christmas was costly for Mary, for Joseph, and certainly for Jesus who came down and then, like a servant, he bent down. That's what I want us to see as we read this morning's text. This exorbitant expense of Christmas upon those who were there. So Matthew 1, we'll start reading at verse 18. And I remind you as we do so that this now is the very word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So, a true story. Um, years ago, a reporter in D.C. Um, wanted to do like kind of a little one of those little puff pieces at the um, back end of the evening newscast. So the reporter came up with the idea that she was going to, if possible, interview for the holiday uh, several ambassadors from around the world. Um, I guess the British ambassador hemmed and hawed a bit, uh, finally said he'd do the little snippet. So she asked him you know, the question that she was asking these different ambassadors, what would you like for Christmas? And he replied, I suppose I should like a jar of mint jelly. A couple weeks later, you can imagine his surprise when this piece aired on the, uh, the local affiliate with several ambassadors participating. Question, what would you like for Christmas? The German ambassador replied, I would love a 
peaceful and prosperous decade for the German people. The Swiss ambassador replied, I pray for world leaders guided toward a common goal of peaceful coexistence. And then the Brit said, I suppose I should like a jar of mint jelly. I think the poor guy, I'm, sh- I'm sure he is not as shallow and superficial as that, but in front of millions, he inadvertently reduced the hope of Christmas to something that we might spread on our toast or a little bit of lamb. And so I wanted to ask you this morning, is, is there any possibility here that your family is making a similar mistake in the year 2017? You know, reducing this, this most magnificent of miracles to a set of calendar items or a, or a shopping list. Even here, you know, in this beautiful, healthy church, and gosh, I love you guys, but is it possible, even here in our church family, that Christmas for some of us is not something that is meant to be lived year-long, year-round, transforming lives, changing marriages, but instead Christmas for us is tantamount to a jar of mint jelly. I don't always uh, preach this way, but because this story is so familiar uh, to so many of us, I thought we might just take it verse by verse and see what we uncover here. Um, So if you kept your Bibles open, and I really do encourage that every Sunday, but particularly this Sunday. Beginning at verse 18, we have this betrothal, which of course looked very different first century Palestine than it does 21st century America. Today, a man has to fork over a pretty high-priced ring, but beyond that, you know, he can kind of break the whole thing off if and when he chooses without any significant legal repercussions for the most part. Um, It was quite a bit different back then. The word was kiddushin, where the man and his fiance would be legally considered husband and wife, but they had to wait one year before they were allowed to live or sleep together. Dumbest tradition ever. (laughs) Actually, the reason for it was to confirm the bride's chastity, and then at the end of that one-year period, the groom goes to the bride's house. It's kind of a small, minor ceremony there, and then there's a big and significant procession from the bride's house back to the groom's house. That's pictured, um, if you know the parable of the ten virgins, that's pictured in there. And then at the groom's house, there's a much larger celebration. And then at some point in the course of that celebration, the groom takes the bride to the bedroom. This is still practiced in some Arab countries uh, today. And then afterwards, the token of virginity is waved out the door or out the window, proving that she had remained pure A spectacular display, I'm sure. (laughs) The problem for Mary is that in the course of those 12 months, of that that kiddushen, she comes up pregnant. This is not good. When we think of Christmas, we think of nostalgia and Jimmy Stewart and heartwarming scenes. This was not heartwarming. By the way, just because she lived 2,000 years ago, don't imagine that Mary was so different from young girls today, whatever dreams she had of this big, beautiful, perfect wedding day, whatever that meant in that culture in her mind, that was shattered 
here. The whole plan that she'd been thinking through with her little friends down through the years, it was ruined, not by an angry mother-in-law or, or, or some other circumstance, but all of that was ruined by God himself. Mary knew that to become pregnant within that 12-month Kiddushin period, that betrothal, meant that she was going to be forever branded an adulteress. And now, having been visited by an angel herself, you can read about that in Luke 1, she faces the prospect of also now telling her husband, Christmas, you can see, was exceedingly costly for Mary. But not just Mary. Because verse 19 Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Can you imagine how painful and humiliating this was for Joseph? What would it be like to hear from the girl you're engaged to but you have not yet slept with? I'm pregnant. She had to have been unfaithful. Joseph could not have believed her version of the story. Oh, right. God made you pregnant. Did he give you a pet unicorn too? I mean, he's a man of faith. But this is a bridge too far. Imagine the sense of anger and betrayal, which then, when when you have that in your mind, that really only highlights the integrity of this man when you realize that in this culture, there were now two options laying in front of him. Option number one, divorce her publicly. Um, This would have left her social standing in tatters. It would have possibly exposed her to public execution because of her adultery. Or option number two, private divorce which is not a public spectacle. It explains absolutely nothing. To a certain degree, Joseph has to take some of that shame upon himself. But it is a merciful act for Mary. And in kindness, Joseph opts to go that route until we arrive at verse 20, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. It's a virginal conception. I can't explain this, church. We stand humbly in awe of this scripturally given to us miracle. Because see, up until this point, As far as I know, God's created life in three different ways. Adam, from the dust of the earth. Eve, extracted extracted from the rib of Adam. And then the rest of us, when a sperm meets an ovum. But now, in a miraculous act of God, we have the great mystery of the incarnation. A God-child. What do we call that? What do we call him? Well, verse 21, you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, The Hebrew is Yeshua. English, same name as Joshua. It means Jehovah Savior, or Jesus, or uh, rather, God saves. 
Jesus, Yeshua, God saves. By the way, this always confused me as a kid. It seems like God has an awful lot of names. Um, if you can imagine out on the playground, what's your name? Well, my first name's Jesus. My last name's Christ. You can call me Emmanuel. My friends will call me Lord. Ah, which one is it? Well, in case anybody else is confused, here's what the names mean. Christ, of course, was the office. It means Messiah, the promised one. But of the two names in this passage, Emmanuel tells us who he was. Jesus tells us what he does. I'll say that again. Emmanuel tells us who he was. Jesus tells us what he does. Because Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus means God saves us. That was the prophecy. Now at verse 22, from Isaiah centuries beforehand, that a Messiah was coming, that Jesus was the God child who would grow to be the God man and would be uniquely capable of saving us from our sins, of washing you know, the, the filth from our own souls. And so that is why, if you're, if you're new to the church, if you're just exploring the Bible, this is why we do not separate this miracle birth, this, this incarnation from the atonement. Because in a very real sense, folks, Jesus was born to die. So we do not separate the miracle of Christmas Day from the horror of Good Friday or the beauty of Easter morn. Because we understand when we know our Bibles that the cradle is what led to the cross and the cross is what leads to the crown. And it's all made possible because Christ came down and then like a servant, he bent down. Christ came down and then he bent down. And that's verse 23. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the theme of the Bible. If you've never opened a Bible before, you chose a good Sunday to pop into church because you're getting the whole story right there. This is the theme of the Bible. From Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, this is the single message that runs the entire book. Um, In the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve said, God walks with us. And then, of course, through disobedience, that relationship is broken. But in grace, God continues to draw near to his people. That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, When he led Israel out of Egypt, God did so, you'll recall, with a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And the Israelites said, the Lord is before us and behind us, Exodus 14. Um, God had him build a temple where his glory, uh, Shekinah glory, came. God was physically or visibly, I should say, manifested in the presence. And the, the people said, God is in the midst of us. That's 1 Kings 8. And now, in the New Testament, we've jumped that intertestamental period. Now we're in Matthew, and G- Jesus is born, and the angel says, call him Emmanuel, because he, he is God with us. But for God to be with us, this was no jar of mint jelly. Christmas was exceedingly costly. The Greek word is kenosis. That, that, um, it means that, that Jesus 
emptied himself of his majesty and the glory that was his as second person of the Trinity in perfect fellowship. Think of a glass of water being poured out. That's what Jesus did when he came down and then bent down. He emptied himself of all that that was his due and that was his privilege. Uh, Author and poet Dorothy Sayers, she says it like this. For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, God had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. And that's where the text leaves us. At verse 24 and 25, Joseph did as the angel, uh, angelos means messenger, commanded him. Joseph took Mary as his wife. You talk about costly. All of her shame now becomes his shame too. By not pursuing divorce, it seemed as if Joseph was admitting that that baby was his. In fact, if you were to turn to uh, John 8:41, you would find more than three decades later, the opponents of Jesus snidely remarked to him, we were not born of fornication. Implication, you were. 30 years later, whispers and innuendo still. Because the angel didn't show up and explain the situation to everybody else. So now, Mary and Joseph, they're that couple, right? When people go through their yearbook from Nazareth High School. (laughs) Oh, you remember them, don't you? What they did. Such a shame. Such a shame. For this family, Christmas was exceedingly costly. So that's, that's the narrative. That's the nonfiction story. Beyond awe and gratitude, how are we to respond to Matthew chapter 1? What, what, what does this te- text ask of us? It's a good question to ask whenever we work through a sermon together. Um, How can, in this case, Matthew 1 inform our lives in the week ahead? Three quick things. I'm sure it's more than this, but I, I think it's at least this. Number one, the great evidence of faith, church, is obedience. James tells it true. Faith without works is... So obedience to God is the validation of our faith we profess in God. Mary and Joseph's obedience, which evidenced their faith, should make us all sit up a little bit straighter and take notice. And, and, and then pause to consider 
are there areas of my own life that are out of alignment with the clear, undeniable precepts of God? How I treat my wife or my husband. How I approach my kids. How I do my work. My sexual life. My church life. Are there things in my life where my lack of obedience speaks much louder of my faith than my obedience does? That's number one. Number two, obedience, which is the evidence of faith, may at times be very costly. Hopefully you saw at least that in the text before us. Uh, John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, which is a fantastic read. Read it in the modern English version or you'll go crazy. But it's a really, really good read. Um, uh, he, he was in prison for years um, for preaching the gospel in his home country. And he wrote from his cell, The parting with my wife and poor children hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. I have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family has had to meet with, especially my blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. If ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life. Obedience at times will be very, very costly. So the, the evidence of faith is obedience. Obedience may be costly. Last application, it is the costliness of Christmas that drives the mission of this church family and I pray our individual families today. The costliness of Christmas that drives our mission. Because Christ came down and then he bent down. This holiday is about far more than a jar of mint jelly. Christ is both Emmanuel, that means God with us. He is Jesus, that means God saves us. So, whether it's kick AM, or it's a free Christmas concert, or it's the way that you approach your boss tomorrow, or it's the way you approach your spouse today, all of these truths are what drive the way that we act and we approach the world around us. And might I also add that some of you have been kicking the tires on Christianity long enough. It's time to make a choice. It's time to make a decision that this God who is with us is indeed this God who saves us. That he came to be with the very people who need him. Sometimes in the most broken of situations, which is where I'm going to finish this morning, um, Brian Chapel reminds us that a generation ago, um, when the captivity of American hostages in Iran had stretched for uh, months and months, the terrorists at that time, and a few of you may recall this, um, they made one small concession to the political pressures of the world, and they allowed the hostages to celebrate Christmas together, and then they videotaped it for propaganda purposes. We understand that. 
but it was quite a scene. Um, these, these hostages held captive for so long already, celebrating the God child who came to be with us. Um, so the service was broadcast around the world and there was one woman, um, her name's Catherine Koob. Uh, she's a Christ follower. Uh, she was an embassy worker at the time. Uh, she softly sang a children's carol during that service, Away in a Manger, which is not one of my favorite carols. But in the context of captivity, terror, and uncertain future, I think it might have been. It was the, the final verse that was the most poignant. Be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. Christmas was so costly because it was where God drew near to his people. And he tells us, I'm beside you. (laughs) I love you. After all, my very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.